Great to be with you all this week and uh, really a fairly, as you could imagine, a fairly heavy week and just kind of a, a little bit somber in the office and around the church just lifting up this sweet little Josiah. And it was interesting because as we're working through the book of Genesis through the first 12 chapters this fall, the section that we landed on this week was actually God's design and creation of man. And so I found that fitting as a reminder of who the source of life is. And so I want to invite you, if you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're studying in chapter two of Genesis this morning. We started working through that even last week and talking about the Sabbath and Hopefully there's some people in here that actually got some rest and actually took me up on that invite to start trying that on for size. And this week, moving in, and really what I think of a picture that comes to mind of this section is the idea of, of zooming in. I don't know if you've seen a movie before where it kind of moves from kind of the outer space, then moves down to earth and to a, to a, a town, a, a city, then into a neighborhood, and then into someone's window, and there the scene starts there, kind of honing in to a specific place. And really, I think that's what's happening in the book of Genesis, is chapter one was kind of big picture stuff. And now chapter two is moving in and looking at the specifics of creation. And really, if you think about the audience, what would they be the most interested out of any part of creation? The most interested would be on how did we get here? What did that part of the story look like? And so chapter two, whereas chapter one was broad and general, now we're moving to more specific and more intimate. This week in my study, I had a chance, I end up going through a lot of different materials each week. And one of them was a particular video that I stumbled upon that kind of captured this idea of zooming out and zooming back in. I thought it would be a blessing for us this morning as we think about God's magnificent creation. Take a peek at this for the next minute or two.
Hmm. Pretty awesome, right? I, uh, I thought that was a pretty spectacular looking at the scope of God's creation, not just the expanse out, but the expanse in. That him as the designer, my hope is as a church, as we start to actually zoom in and see, whoa, the creator designer that we're dealing with is magnificent. The things that we stress about, the things that we worry about, we're able to lay those at his feet when we see the scope and expanse of all that he's done and continues to do. Let me pray before we explore this section. Lord Jesus, again, we come to you inviting you to speak to us, to meet us in this time in your word, that our understanding of who you are would be expanded, that our trust meter as that happens would go up drastically even here this morning. We submit this time to you now that we'd be free of distractions. You'd speak to us directly through your word. We invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our our Savior. Amen. Chapter 2. We were in it last week, the first three verses, now verse 4 we're beginning with. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. We'll pause there for a moment. This is really the introduction of this section as it's zoomed in from big picture to now personal. And there's a transition here that I wanted us to catch. This is the beginning of the account of the generations. Generations which lead all the way from there to here. To many generations, as you can imagine. But here we're introduced to a very important fact that we have a God that is not distant. Let me explain why I say that. A God that's not distant. Because who do you think ha- gave this account? Do you think it's a bunch of guys sitting around and talking, oh, remember when he created this and created? No, it's God literally revealing himself to the author, which we believe is Moses of this account of the origin of man. It's a pretty powerful reality that our God, when you're trying to get to know him, chose to reveal himself to us chose to reveal he wants to be known. He wants to be known by you. In fact, we see a pretty big shift in chapter one to chapter two. Chapter one, we see one single name used for God through the entire story of creation. That name is Elohim. The Elohim, I explained it a few weeks ago, that simply means strong one. He wanted us to see the, the majesty and power, the, the inducing reverence and awe. But now he's moved from that to a new name, Lord God, which is the name that we're familiar with throughout the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. It's personal. It's intimate. He's moved from formal to some degree of connection with mankind, kind of pointing to the invitation that we have personally to a move from formal to intimate I was talking with John Irwin this last week. He was telling me the story of his son-in-law and the process of getting to know him. It was pretty formal. would only refer to John as Mr. Irwin. In fact, he was telling me about when he came to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. I'm not looking forward to those days, but came to ask permission. And, and in that, it was all about Mr. Irwin. May I do this, Mr. Irwin, that, all this. And, and after he got married to his daughter, John was like, you know, I thought I'd let him off the hook. And so I came to him because he was still 
referring to me as Mr. Irwin. He's like, hey, you can feel free to call me John. Or you can even call me dad if you feel comfortable with that. He went with John. But uh, either, either way, this idea, this invitation was there to move from uh, to broad and formal to intimate and personal. That happens in human relationships. And it happens right here in scripture with our God choosing to make himself known to mankind. That he's revealing the origin of our story we see this beginning of the account of generations in verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We'll pause there. Really, uh, one thing I wanted to address first, a lot of people will point to some, uh, what seems like some inconsistency. In verses 5 through 8 here, it's pointing to, it points to the idea of plants in the garden arriving after man, which was contradictory, what many would believe, to the account in Genesis 1, which says that they happened on day 3. Adam showed up on day 6. You're like, well, how does that work? What I would suggest, and the most logical explanation for that, is the fact that this is the introduction of cultivated plants, a garden, if you will. It's God literally, we're going to see in a few more verses, him planting the Garden of Eden as an environment, a habitat for mankind. This isn't the introduction of plants, but this is the very first garden. Prior to that, man didn't exist to work the garden or take care of plants for food. But here, the introduction of the garden, and then we're told a very powerful statement, says, then the Lord God formed the man. In chapter one, it kept using the term created. Now we're introduced to a new word, the word formed. Now what comes to mind when you think of the word formed? Very personal. The idea, what do you, I think of like a potter taking some clay and actually shaping it, designing it, molding it into perfection, a, a demonstration of one's artistry. That's what our God did with man. He said, I'm going to make something amazing and amazing it is. Can I take a couple minutes for some nerd facts about the, the human body? This week I was studying that. In fact, I even had my eighth grade son look up some additional statistics. So those are peppered in here. A couple interesting things about ourselves. First off is that we're set right out of the gates when we're born with two sets of 23 chromosomes. In our chromosomes, there's over 20 billion bits of information in one chromosome. So that's, that's pretty cool. If those were words that would fill the largest, one of them would fill the largest of all the world's libraries just with one of our chromosomes. That's how complex and uniquely designed you are. We arrive on this planet with 200 bones, perfectly shaped, 500 muscles, some of those muscles obeying our direction, and some of those operating independent of us. What, what, what are some that come to mind that operate independent of us? Help me out here. Our heart, right? Our lungs, right? That's what we're praying for sweet little Josiah. The, the part that's independent of us. I was reading this week that an average, in an average lifespan, a person's heart beats 
3 billion times. How many times have you had to tell your heart to beat? Not once. It just does it. That's part of his initial creative design. Our brain, a couple things about that. Our brain has 10 billion nerve cells connected to the body by a complex nervous system. Unbelievable all that's happening in your brain. So don't buy it when someone says there's nothing going on up there. This idea of our blood vessels, all those little veins and everything going through our our body. If you were to stretch out, All of your blood vessels, that would be gross. But if you did, they stretch a span of 60,000 miles for one person. You could make it around the planet twice, just following the chain of your blood vessels in your body. This is unbelievable. The designer that we have, and if you think that's impressive, if your DNA was uncoiled, your DNA strands were uncoiled, listen to this statistic, 10 billion Miles, You could make it to Pluto just following your DNA strand. Like how unbelievable the design by this designer. If you look down, getting a little bit more personal, look at your skin, look at some of the details there. Your skin, in fact, all of it holds about 2 million different sweat glands. You have about 3,000 sweat glands in just one inch of your skin. That's pretty, pretty cool to think about. And so next time somebody tells you you're stinky, you're like, well, there's a lot going on there. This idea, in fact, our average thing, this I found very interesting, our scalp contains about 100,000 hairs for most of you. <laughs> the rest of us, the average person though, has the, their hair grows about six inches per year. Neither are true for me, but pretty impressive. Circulatory system, pulmonary system, digestive system, endocrine system, immune system, eyes, ears, sense of smell, taste, touch. Our nose, I was reading, that's able to detect over a trillion different possible smell combinations. Just your very own sniffer. All of these things unbelievable, the complex design, leaving us with more than just the physical. Think about all the things that you're able to feel and experience. You feel joy, sadness, delight, disgust, love, hate, all of these things being part of our God's design as a unique image bearer of him. You bear the image of our God. He's like, this is a demonstration of me and you. It's a pretty powerful reality. That's why it says in Psalm 14, only the fool would say there is no God. It says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the picture of what happened in that simple sentence when it says, he formed you. He shaped him. You're the design of an unbelievable designer. And for us, that should give us some confidence, not self-confidence, but God confidence, confidence in our maker and our designer. In case your ego is getting too big, what does it tell us there that our body is actually made out of? Dust, right? It's dust. In fact, science has proven that the, the entire Earth's core, the, uh, the outside uh, crust of it, actually has all the exact ingredients that our body's made up uh, from. So, uh, in case you're thinking too highly, you are made up of dust. I heard a story of a little boy that was pretty excited about this. He heard from his mom, is, is it true that we're actually made from dust? And she's like, absolutely. That's what God designed us from. He says, well, that's interesting. He said, because I looked under my bed and there's somebody either coming or going. I'm not sure which. <laughs> this idea that, that as the designer, he took this earth and formed and shaped us 
perfectly screaming of a creator. And then the part that I love is the personal part. What does it say? Is that he breathed life into his lungs. Breathe the life. And so, so you think about that, how if you even play that out in your head, how awkward that is. What's that like to breathe breath into someone's lungs? We're not going to practice that as an exercise here. But the intimacy there speaks of a God that wasn't like, oh, we'll just make that. No, a God that's shaping and breathing life into his creation. It's an intimate, personal God, and we're custom made in his image. That should tell us something about the importance of us to our maker. That's the description. And you think about that from that, he says, and from that became a living creature, living life from God. Everything that you see that has life, guess where that originates from. It's all from him. He sustains it. It's kind of comedy to think that we're independent of our maker. I was talking a number of years back, Adrian and I were talking, we actually struggled with infertility for quite a while and talking to a a specialist, a a woman doctor, she was explaining how in vitro works. And I've told this story before, it's still fascinating to me. She explained how it worked though. She's like, man, we we create the environment, we try to set the table as best as we can and and, uh, allow for everything, this soup to come together. And, uh, And then she said, but then there's something that either gives it life or doesn't give it life. We're not really sure what that is. I'm like, hey, I can help. That's the one part I can fill in here. With the designer here, we see from right out of the gates, perfectly crafting and making us in his image. He also made a perfect environment for us. Look in verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Again, pointing to my earlier idea of him specifically crafting this garden. It says, in the east... And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havla, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, we get into ones familiar, is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates River. Here's a description of the initial design of his garden that he came up with. And if you think you have a good garden, can you imagine this one? It says that he planted it. He designed it. He was making the perfect environment for mankind. And for someone that thinks, oh, this, a lot of this stuff is just figurative. And, and this is just imagery for us to hold to. It's kind of strange to me, if that's the case, how many specific names he uses of places and things and rivers. And even some of those, you're like, well, I haven't heard of a few of those, but some of them you have. Anybody think that post-flood, the geography maybe looks a little bit different now? But you can still visit the Euphrates and the Tigris. You can still go on those and experience them. The Tigris, it runs through the Mesopotamian Valley where scholars believe Eden existed. The Euphrates runs parallel to this and dumps into the Persian Gulf, both of those being specific places. You can go take 
take a swim this next weekend. This idea of it being figurative is kind of shot down where he's giving specific details of this perfect environment that he was going to place man in. Mentions two trees there. You notice one's the tree of life. A tree of life is pointed to here. It's also pointed to in Revelations 22. It talks about it being a source of eternal life, having uh, healing properties. We don't know all the details on this. I think it's one of those things that we're going to get some blanks filled in in future dates. But this was part of the initial design. And then the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're going to be introduced to in a moment here. All of this part of God's perfect plan, perfect environment. If you think man can come up with good things, can you imagine what this garden was like? Can you imagine how majestic that would have been? How beautiful, how breathtaking, awe-inspiring, rivers flowing out of it, rivers flowing around it. Man comes up with ideas of what he thinks is going to be really good. I saw this picture this week of uh, what man's perspective. Is this what Jesus meant when he said he goes to prepare a place? Krispy Kreme and Chick-fil-A, but I think our ideas pale in comparison to our creator's design. His initial plan was perfection. So he plops us, take a look, right in the middle of this environment. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Enjoy it all. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's as far as we're going to get in the section of scripture, but that needs some explanation. First thing I wanted to point out is the initial intent of man. Sometimes we think of paradise, the perfect environment. I would just be sitting back between palm trees on a hammock forever, eternally. No, that's not how it is. God's initial design included what? Work. We were, we were put in the garden to take care of it, to work the garden, to, to, to be stewards of something that was entrusted to us. That's still a charge for us, even as Christ followers, to be responsible, to take care of the things that we've been uh, given, to be responsible with pollution, to be recycle, all this stuff. Like it's all good stuff taking care of the planet he's given us. His initial design included work. It's a big deal. Then he also charges us. He says, there's, there's some parameters though in this work environment. There's some parameters. You're able to enjoy all of this. Can you imagine how fresh the vegetables would have been? The fruit would have been amazing. But he said, there's one thing that I'm asking you not to touch. What's the one thing? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Find that interesting, that title, that description. Think about what that tree represented. I believe it was a physical tree that you could touch, feel, see, all of that. Physical tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Up until this point, who was the one that was deciding right and wrong, good and evil? God was. He was the one making those decisions. He was playing the rightful role of God over his creation. But he gave the choice by partaking in that tree. You are shifting the mantle from who's guiding and leading from him to me. I'm going to decide right and wrong, good and evil myself. I'm going to operate independent of my maker. That was the choice. And that's why through the entire Old Testament, what did it keep repeating? They did what was right in their own eyes. 
They were going to go off on their own self-gods, if you will. Only the problem is, with a tainted view and limited perspective, that's taken us all kinds of crazy directions. Some of the things that we watch, even in present-day culture, as self-gods rule the earth. It's a pretty scary reality, independent of their maker. Here is the choice. Some people say, maybe you've asked this question before, why in the world did God give them that choice? Why did he introduce the potential for rebellion into this whole thing? Have you ever wondered that? Anybody ever wondered that? Ask that question. Why in the world did he do that? Here's what I would suggest, and there's lots of books written on this. You could unpack this for days, but here's the one big idea is this, is that love, true love demands a choice. True love demands a choice. If he wanted to, he could have made us robots to do exactly what we are told. True love demands a choice. Otherwise, you're just literally living out exactly the execution of your maker. He said, I want to be loved by choice with you. I'll explain how I kind of process through this. When my kids were younger, much younger, every day when I'd get home from work, I'd open the front door. Even if I tried to sneak in, they would all come sprinting to the door. They would grab my ankles. They would want to play. They'd want to wrestle. They'd want to do whatever it was with dad. Those were good days. Those were very good days. Now I have three kids, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. When I come in after a full day's work, I arrive with arms wide open. I am lucky if I get a, hey, dad. (laughs) Like, that's a good day. That's a good response. Most typically, this is what I hear. Crickets, nothing. There's no excitement. There's no passion. Now, I have a couple choices. I could do this. I could say, you know what, kids? If you don't do a better job of stinking greeting me when I get home, no more phones ever. Then they're like, for sure, attached to my ankles, wanting to play, wanting to do whatever dad wants to do. That could be an option, and I consider that sometimes. But really, when you think about that, would that foster, would that evoke any kind of genuine love? I'm willing to take the occasional hug, the occasional snuggle by my daughter, the occasional, hey, thanks, dad, I love you. I'm willing to trade that because that's a mature love that's driven from propelled or compelled by by real affection. It's not something formulated or coerced or forced. Instead, that's the same idea of our maker. He didn't didn't make you with the have to do that. He, He didn't say that you must be in relationship. He invites us to be in relationship. He's a gentleman. He asks us to dance. If you force yourself into a dance, that's called assault. You see the idea, the picture here is he's saying he's inviting us into relationship with him to continue to play the role of God. And every single time he walked by that tree, I imagine every single time glancing back at it, glancing back at it. It was a, a challenge that he had to wrestle through. Who's going to play the role of God? Is it me or him? Is it me or is it him? That simple representation of God represented the choice that mankind had to make. And that's what he gave us in his perfect plan for us to be reminded of that, to go back to that as our origin, to go back to that as where it all initiated, really helps us make sense 
out of a lot of things, out of how this planet operates. When you have a, when you're being like, why is it so crazy? And you're like, well, because there's about 4 billion self-gods walking around this planet doing their own thing independent of God. We shouldn't be shocked by anything we see or are exposed to. This is the origin of the choice that every single person has. Your coworker, your friend, your family member, every single person has that decision to make. What will I do with the offer for relationship with him playing the role as God in our life? I think when we start to look back and we start to see, oh yeah, but man, he loves us so much. He initially chose to reach out to be known by him. He originally reached out and shaped us, and formed us, and then he created the perfect environment where he would be the one leading and directing with a very best plan. Who wouldn't want that relationship? Who wouldn't? When you think back to that logically, why would you sacrifice or submit to anything else? For us, I think it's valuable for us to go back to our origins, wrestle through some of that, help make sense out of things. My hope is that it moves from being a big lofty idea out there to zooming into the very core or quirks of who we are. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and the reminder, first off, in a heavy week, that you reign over all of this. You're the author of life. You're the God that determines what's best for us. God, I just submit to you in that, even this week with sweet Josiah, Thank you this week for this reminder that you're a good God, that you want to be known, that you care for us intimately, that you craft things, that you have a perfect environment for us that you wanted because we are dear to you. You're special. We are special to you. You breathed even life into our lungs. We praise you for this reality. When the enemy wants to sneak in this week and tell us that we're something less than we are, I pray that this root, this origin story would be the core or the basis for our confidence, our confidence in you. When we're doubting and wrestling through how to, how to solve something, we go back to the source of power, the source of strength, the eternal one. We praise you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I'd love if you continue to pray for little Josiah this week. That'd be a gift. If there's something specific we can be praying for you about, we have a couple volunteers, John and Cheryl, here this morning. I would love to talk with you, chat with you after the service. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great rest of your Sunday.